Getting sober requires a lot more than mind over matter, a lot more than willpower. It's about leveraging the support around you. People in recovery typically need a mix of medical help, emotional support, and changes in lifestyle to manage their addiction, not just mental determination. As both a therapist and someone embracing the recovery lifestyle, there's one tool I always recommend to people needing extra accountability, Soberlink. Soberlink is a high-tech breath analyzer system designed to help you get and stay sober. And here's why I love it. You'll test the same day every day, eliminating testing anxiety. Friends and family receive instant test results, helping you rebuild trust and preventing relapse. Accountability is a part of that, and it's something to really be embraced. Devices have built-in facial recognition, so your support circle knows you're testing, and tamper-resistant sensors flag any attempts at trying to beat the system, so your sobriety is never questioned. So let 2024 be your best year yet. Visit Soberlink.com forward slash T-A-M to sign up and receive $50 off your device. That's Soberlink.com forward slash T-A-M. And let accountability be your guide. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Window. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. All right, everyone, we are on to another episode of the Addicted Mind podcast. My name is Dwayne Osterland. I'm your host. And today our guest is Dr. Aaron Gupta. You might have heard him before already on the podcast, but I wanted to do a solo episode with him because I think his work is really important to understand in treating this opioid crisis. So Dr. Aaron Gupta has worked as a solo primary care physician for the last 35 years and as an addiction doctor for the past 15 years. He is an American Society of Addiction Medicine certified addiction provider and certified medical review officer. Over the years of treating addiction patients, he has seen firsthand the devastation and heartbreak caused by addiction and has a passion for stopping the opioid crisis that is claiming so many lives in our country. He is a member of the Rotary International and chair of the Rotary's Medication Treatment Action Group to promote Medication Assisted Treatment, MAT, and Addiction Prevention in North America. He is also author of the highly acclaimed new book, The Preventable Epidemic, a frontline doctor's experience and recommendations to resolve America's opioid crisis. So today, I think you'll get a lot out of this episode. Dr. Gupta has firsthand experience in working in this field from a medical perspective. And don't forget, if you are enjoying the Addicted Mind podcast, please rate and review us in iTunes or wherever you get your podcast. That really does help the podcast get found. And click the subscribe button so you can get the latest episode in your podcast feed. All right, everyone, stay tuned for this episode. All right, everyone, welcome to the Addicted Mind podcast. My guest today is Aaron Gupta. And Aaron, you've already been on the podcast already. I have been. But I've wanted to, I wanted to have you back because I wanted to delve into this topic in an even deeper way because I just think it is so incredibly important 
that uh, we talk about this. And so you're the author of the book, The Preventable Epidemic of Frontline Doctors Experience and Recommendations to Resolve America's Opioid Crisis. So let's just jump in from there. And first, tell me a little bit about you getting into this field and getting into this work and kind of the experience that created all of your passion to get this information out there. Well, so I've been in practice in the rural community since 1989, and I had an appointment to be a deputy medical examiner for eight years. Then I was a local jail physician for 11 years, and I also worked in the emergency room on a part-time basis a couple times a month to gain access to how people suffer when they come to the uh, emergency rooms, in addition to working in my office, the hospital, and the nursing home. So I had a very global view of patient human suffering. And in 2006, uh, after the jail found a local uh, national company to run these services there, I had some free time. And I was wondering, by 2006, a lot of young, healthy people were dying from drug overdose, and I wanted to understand why. And lucky for me, I figured out uh, to become a member of American Society of Addiction Medicine, the highest organization in this country that has the most and the vast knowledge about treating addiction, evaluating treat, uh, addiction, people keeping in remission. So over the next few years, I started learning about it, and I also became a member of the Rotary Club around the same time. And I was doing presentations, and I realized the system is broken, and I... Uh, started writing a book about six years ago, which I finished about two years ago. Tell me a little bit about that realization that this system is broken. What started to lead you to see that? And what were the things that you were noticing that said, you know, this this isn't working? Well, the even as of today, 94% of the patients with addiction do not have access to care. This is despite the fact we have an effective medicine available in this country since 2002. So I would expect more and more people will get into treatment. I have 85% success rate, but I'm very limited, restricted, and overly regulated trying to practice addiction medicine. And in no other field of medicine do these restrictions and regulations and oversight persist. So why is it there? Is that a criminalization of the treatment arm that led to the criminalization of the doctors? And then it made more difficult for doctors to learn and practice addiction medicine, and that made it more difficult for patients to get access, even though we have an effective medicine. So think of this way. In early 80s, when I came here, there was a problem going on in the hospital. Young people coming with fever were diagnosed, you know, 15, 16 years later that they had AIDS from HIV infection. Until a diagnosis and treatment was established, half a million Americans had died. Now 400,000 people are alive and well. We have an effective medicine available. Why are people dying? So that was the problem. So you started seeing these clients come in and they're actually, like you said, they're dying from addiction and there's treatment there and yet they can't get it or they don't have access or there's there's a lot of roadblocks here. And I, I would just imagine as a doctor, you're sitting there watching these people die and you're stuck. Yeah. And and majority of the doctors do not want to engage into that practice because there is no education, there is no incentive, there's a lot of disincentives built into the system, 
and there is, like I said, regulations, limits, and oversight, which is not necessary. And so it scares the doctors because there's a lot of audits by DEA and insurance companies and licensing and regulation. So it, it is a very scary field. So, okay, let's let's talk about that piece a little bit because we you know when when you did your lecture and I and I listened to that you use this term that you know the criminalization of the treatment arm of addiction and and you know I never thought of it that way and so I would love to talk about that because you you know you said the doctors are scared to to get into this field I mean okay there's also the lack of education too and 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 stigma around addiction and all of that but to actually get be afraid to practice and can you help explain that a little bit more in in detail so people can understand what you mean yeah. by that so in 1914 Harrison narcotic act that controlled the trade of illegal drugs around the world created by america not relevant in uh, in canada said a lot of things. Medically, it said addiction is a moral failing and is not treatable. And a doctor cannot write another addictive drug for uh, addictive conditions. So what happens? All the laws that are passed subsequent to that are based on that law from the data 2000, even though the Supreme Court passed in 1962, addiction is a chronic disease and is treatable and is preventable. The system, the insurance companies, the policymakers have done nothing to come to the middle and treat it as a chronic condition. So that leads to the problems with the stigma. Now, the criminalization happens because we're not allowed to treat addictions as a doctors. The methadone clinics are were created 60 years ago to bypass that thing so non-doctors could run the clinic and give a class to very strong narcotic to get people away from the heroin. So when original studies were done, it showed that people, it was helpful. Addiction didn't go away. People became productive citizens. They were more functional. So they approved that medicine for that reason. Now, when Suboxone was being researched, from 1950s and 60s, and then there was nothing happening till 1990 because of the company switch hands and there was not much interest. So in 1999, CDC for the very first time said 16,000 people have died of poisoning. It could be alcohol, it could be drug, it could be multiple things. So when that information went to the federal government, the federal government said, let's do something about it. So what did they do? They debated that issue for two years, and they passed a law called Data 2000. And the Data 2000 now allows that any doctor practicing can take a limited course, pass an exam, apply for an X waiver, and they can become addiction providers. So as I became a member of American Society of Addiction Medicine in 2006, Six years after the law was passed, I got my waiver and I got credential as an addiction provider. So in 2005, in the background, the federal government reviewed the data again and said, yes, more people are getting help, maybe less number of people are dying, but there's a little bit concern about the diversion of the Suboxone or the buprenorphine. And that made the second step towards the criminalization of the treatment arm because now we have to have a diversion control plan 
on the treatment medication, while the oxy contents of planets and morphines and dilaudids were at an accelerating rate uh, responsible for overdose deaths and creating more addictions. Can you explain a little bit more about the concern they had about Suboxone and why is that a concern? Here's this drug that can that can support people in, in recovery. What's the concern? And explain that a little bit more, how it's being subverted or used or in a different way. So people can understand. Sure. It, 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 it's a federal um, uh, reevaluation of the data 2000. Obviously, I was not there. I was not even knowledgeable about these things. I reviewed the data, and that's what it says. It's doing good, but there is little bit of diversion of this medication. Okay? So that's what is exactly it says, is they want to stop the diversion so that it's not misabused by the communities. They're not looking into the lack of access to care and the street drugs uh, or the prescription drugs are killing people. So people could use this drug and abuse it if they wanted well, so to, but it's very, very small. A, yeah. If, if No, it was not being used for abuse. It was being used for people who had a bad day and did not have the money to go and get the OxyContin or the heroin, they can get a Suboxone strip from the street, from somebody else, for 10, 15, 20 bucks, it saves a bad day for them. So people were not getting high from it. It's just saving them from a bad day. Right, and that's I think that's the important point that needs to be understood so people can can get that, so they're able to see that. That here's something that's treatable, but because it's, because it's being used in this way, they had this this concern about it, or which what you're saying is that concern was minor. It's not, it, you know, these people are trying to get better. They're trying to get help. They're trying to get support. So think of this way. If there are 100 patients, only six have access to doctors like me and get this vaccine from the pharmacy, what do the 94 do? Yeah. They target yeah. these 6% of the patients and, and offer them, hey, I'm, you take half the medicine and sell me the half, you know. So there's bartering going on uh, on there. And so before they were selling oxycontins and opanas and morphines and dilaudids, now this became another another tool to to barter. Right. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life changing care, and we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best. It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. And that sounds like, like, why isn't this available for everybody so that they can easily get access to this, this drug that can help support them in their recovery process? Yeah, so that's what I say. If we improve access to care for all the 41 million people, they can see a doctor, get a prescription from the pharmacy, there would be no diversion. Now, we're not talking diversion of OxyContin. The fentanyl and the other street drugs are killing people 100% of the time. So all these laws need to change that have been created to curb the pills and the pill mills because that's not the problem anymore. Yeah. Yeah. So how do doctors get caught up into this and and get so afraid to get into this treatment arm, this, you know, addiction medicine? So when doctors read the details of Data 2000 in my mind, they 
knew if there's a DA going to come and audit and the insurance company is going to come and audit and substance abuse mental health is going to come and audit, they said this is not a good thing for them. They wanted to stay away. In the meantime, as the OxyContin business was going up in late 90s and 2000, the FDA had already started, DA had already started shutting down doctors who were writing too many of those things. So the OxyContin providers grew from 2000 to 94,000 by the year 2002 because of the sales taxes by, by Purdue Pharmaceuticals. So, and they were mostly primary care doctors that they targeted. So now they started targeting with Suboxone also any doctor that's willing to do it. So if I didn't want you to do OxyContin, why should I be getting into Suboxone? I mean, this addiction is a very difficult condition, very lethal. People are very manipulative in the beginning and difficult to deal with, and then they're not very compliant. So half the patients would not show up, or they are intoxicated, or they're in withdrawal, and and, and they are not properly dressed, they're not hygienic. So, so doctors felt, hey, my regular patient's going to go away if I start caring for these people, and then I have more risk in, in into my practice. Right. So right, right. no no education, risky patients. No incentives, a lot of disincentives. So that's what happened. Well, so how do we start to to change that paradigm and make this a you know make this more available to people? Because I mean, like you said, I mean, people are dying. I, I think you had said last time. I can't remember how many people are dying a day from drug overdose, but it's 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 so incredibly high, and it, it should just, be happening. It, it 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 was over 300. The latest number looks like close to 400 per day. As of last year, it was 1.110,000 last year that people had died. And these are direct causes of death, not indirect. So if, if somebody comes into the hospital and can't breathe and the EMT put the tube into the throat to make them breathe and then they die, the diagnosis listed is respiratory failure with ventilatory support. It doesn't say anything about the drug problem. So the real number of deaths may be much higher, two to three times higher than what has been reported. One more thing in the criminalization of the treatment arm that we didn't brought up, bring up today is the federal government sued the company that made Suboxone the first time for $2 billion. OxyContin, Purdue company, got off for $4 billion. Uh, Ricketts Bickenser was the original name of the company and that was apprehended. They had to file bankruptcy. They renamed it Indivor. So their case is still ongoing but for $2 billion. So that is the other problem with criminalization of the treatment arm. So help me understand that. Why why would the government sue the Suboxone makers? Oh, because of the technical language in my mind is too much on the street. Uh, I have the documents somewhere. Too much on the street, easily available. People are selling, trading, abusing. So they held the company responsible for that. Got it. Got it. But what you see is this this drug is incredibly helpful to help people deal with the opioid addiction. Can you explain that process yes. and how that works? So basically, you first have a cause and effect relationship. When we do toxicology report, in the top 20 offending agents, buprenorphine or suboxone do not show up. If this is not killing people, there should be no reason for this kind of activity by the federal government against the company. Right. If, if the gun was not, uh, bullet was not fired from a gun, I shouldn't be responsible for, for killing somebody. 
Right. Right. Okay. No. So, so your question was again, please. So I'm just asking how does how does this work for people who are struggling okay. with addiction? How does Suboxone help them? Help and them. why this is so important that they have access to this? Okay. So when you have a person who has become used to taking narcotics, have reached a stage of abuse or misuse, and has become addicted, now the worst thing for them is not having the medicine, a withdrawal. And the withdrawal can last for weeks and months. Slowly and slowly, it gets better, but it's a bad case of flu times 10. So nobody wants to stay in the state of physical, mental situation. This medicine, Suboxone or buprenorphine, once the narcotic is gone out of the brain, it goes and very tightly binds to the mu opioid receptors in the brain, and then it doesn't let any other narcotic come and affect the brain or the body. So there is no withdrawal with this medication. You have to take it every day. Uh, some control with pain. It helps you make feel better. And so if everybody gets this medicine through a doctor from a pharmacy, then 85% of my patients are productive citizens. They're back into education, they're back to school, they're back to work, uh, go to church, back with their families, pay taxes, buy houses and cars. They're just like you and me. So we have to give these people a chance to get back into the society. Yeah, and I would say, you know, with that, if, if you're dealing with, you know, withdrawal and you're in so much discomfort because of that withdrawal, you can't function. So- you know, by allowing, not allowing, but by giving a person the ability to function, they also do all the things that are, that go against addiction, community, feeling productive, you know, doing all those things that, that helps them get better. I mean, it, you know, you have those things in your life, you want to get farther and farther away from the addictive process, right? So it, it allows them to start to build those things in their life. That's how I see it. Yeah. The other uh, the other problem is a lot of these people are habitual or used to taking a lot of different medications. They have severe anxiety. Over the years, doctors have given them high dose of benzodiazepines. They cannot focus. They are on medicines like Adderall and Ritalin. Now the, and they're on pain pills and they're doing other street drugs. So now the regulations have tightened so much. Anybody, everybody doctor is afraid to write those medications. They're not only going through narcotic withdrawal, they're going through withdrawal of the benzos, they're going through withdrawal of the stimulants. Now they really become non-functional. So what happens? They go towards more street drugs, fentanyl, heroin, cocaine, and meth, because they got to find somewhere some relief. And all these drugs basically do one thing, increase the brain dopamine level, most of them, except the uh, methamphetamine works differently, but all of the medications work the same way. So I'll have patients, so instead of taking pain pills, I took Coke. I said, it has no relationship, but that, it makes me feel better. Right. So right. They're, they're raising the dopamine level and feeling better. And none of us want to stay in pain and hurt. I mean, it's, it's, you, you, can, you can manage it for some time, but over time, we all, you know, at some point want to get out of it. And if we can't, if if we can't manage that or have some way to do that in a in a constructive manner, you know, most likely we're going to go back. And I see that we see that in all the when addiction isn't treated well, we we see people go back. You you go back because you can't be in pain forever. 
You can't well, tolerate every, it forever. Everybody has an, a fundamental right to be feeling better or happy. And, and that's what they're trying to do. And we're taking that right away by withdrawing them from the medications when they need the most. And, and this makes them totally non-functional. So I'm saying let doctors be doctors so that we don't have to be afraid of our livelihood and we can easily take care of these people. Doctors need more education in addiction, not less. So there was a MATE, M-A-T-E law passed in December that went into effect in June that said, oh, you don't need any education. Now you can write anybody Suboxone. I have not seen any significant increase in number of doctors getting into addiction medicine. I was in Arizona about a month ago, Phoenix, and two weeks ago I was in Dallas giving a lecture. And uh, Dallas, there were about 70 doctors. Arizona was about 20 doctors. Nobody cares to get into addiction medicine. There is no incentive. There's a lot of disincentive. So if I can't convince people to do it, uh, nobody else will be able to change their mind. System has to change so that uh, we can take care of people. Right. And, and you know, allow them to, to, to thrive or give them the this, this space to be able to thrive. As I hear you talking, I also see, you know, uh, you know doing addiction treatment in an evidence-based way with some science and some research and that, that there are ways to help clients move away from these drugs in a, in a systematic way that uses all the evidence. And it's not just the, the, oh, I kind of the old going back to the, the stereotype of, or, or the old modality, this is a moral problem. You just got to stop it just stop and mm -hmm. really being able to look at it from a more nuanced perspective to be able to treat people how they need to be treated for them. And, and once again, I think everybody's a little bit different. You know, every patient that comes in has different issues, different problems, different traumas, and that we need to use the evidence to, to do it. Yeah. So the evidence is there. There was a um, study done in Vermont that said 12 years ago, Medication-assisted treatment is gold standard in uh, saving lives. Our uh, uh, assistant attorney general to, uh, in 2019 said for the very first time in, in 20 years that medication-assisted treatment is a gold standard in saving lives. So the drug has been there. The evidence has been there. The government has not accepted. And even though now the government has started to accept it, things are very, very slowly moving. And the problem is now the state and federal regulations that have been created to curb the pills and the pill mills are still in place. So if more doctors get into learning and practicing addiction medicine, they're more likely to get in trouble unless we can expunge those regulations that have been passed in the last 20 years to stop this from happening. To really be able to open that up so treatment can happen and, and then people can people who are doing the treatment can feel safe enough to take on some of the these complicated cases to be able to to help people it also sounds like you know when i hear you talking like you know the older model of addiction treatment came out of that abstinence model from the the beginning of treatment but they also the idea of a harm reduction approach to addiction treatment and and it sounds more like this kind of falls into that harm reduction approach where you help people kind of find their way and get them the the best possible care, whatever that looks like to them. I don't know if that's accurate, but I, I wanted your thoughts on that. 
So the harm reduction policies are on compassionate grounds. They are not treatment. They are ex trying to extend the patient into the same state of addiction by providing them clean needles and heroin. Heroin is a class one drug. If I'm mm -hmm. found with a class one drug, I'm going to lose my license and my car and right, my office right, right, and right. everything. So why is it legal for the federal government to dispense this class one drug to these people with addiction and not put efforts into providing them proper treatment, either with methadone or suboxone, along with counseling? Now, this stuff started a few years ago. The first study came out of Vancouver, Canada, two years ago that showed providing clean needles in the city of Vancouver had falling results. The addiction rates went up. The overdose death, death rates went up. Hepatitis B went up. Hepatitis C went up. And HIV went up. So it failed in all the parameters. A oh, year and a half ago... Portland came up with the same results. So it's duplicated in two big places. But eight months ago, Vancouver, Canada approved on compassionate grounds uh, 2.5 grams of fentanyl possession by these people to be legal. That is 1,250 lethal dosages. Uh, I have talked to several people in Midwest. They are demanding that fentanyl should be made legal in America for these people in place of heroin because heroin doesn't give enough high. They want to experience the a better high. I'm concerned that the death rates will continue to escalate as the other studies have shown from the heroin model. So I, I think that's a bad idea. Okay, that's interesting. So uh, by, by doing that or providing free drugs or somehow like, a, you know, pulling that harm reduction uh, approach in these studies actually showed that uh, it caused more harm it caused more harm in all parameters. Right. Yes. So uh, here, here's what I would agree to. Let's say it's end of November 23. We want to do harm reduction policy for the next 13 months. We'll not let anybody die. Provide them clean needle, clean heroin, whatever you want to do, a bed in a room, education. Okay. But promise me January 1, 2025, all the 41 million people are in treatment, medication-assisted treatment. If we're not putting in that kind of efforts and we're just expanding this harm reduction policies, the outcomes are going to be very, very unhealthy. Right. You you need to combine this medical We need to transition piece. from harm reduction to treatment. To treatment. Okay. I, yeah, I understand. That makes a lot of sense. And then getting people into that medical treatment and putting that as part of this process so that they can, once again, get the care that they need. That's actually going to help them. I think the other stepping block is the stigma. How do we stop stigma? I've attended so many meetings at the national level. Everybody screams and says, let's stop stigma. And I say, it's not that easy. We're not doing anything to stop it. It's not like I'm standing outside, yeah. the, the rain comes and I open an umbrella and I'm dry. We really need to create special educational material for all the medical professionals, policymakers, insurance companies on several topics that could at least include addiction, a better vocabulary. I mean, uh, you know, you can't call a dog a dog. I mean, you, you, you can't call a junkie and uh, these people as junkie and addicts and stuff on empathy and humanity. Unless we do that, 
and change the medical school curriculum, nothing is going to change. This is just a little makeup thing we're, we're doing with uh, trying to control the stigma and, and harm reduction policies. It's not going to fix the system. Right. So we need to get the, the language into, into the education system so that, like you said, we can talk about this compassionately. We can bring humanity to it. I mean, uh, once again, I totally get that. I mean, I think one of the, the reasons, you know, the Addicted Mind podcast is is to try and do that, right? Try and bring yep. humanity to all of this, that as human beings, we all suffer and all have problems. And if we help each other and support each other and connect on our common humanity, everything's going to get better. And, and, you know, when we do that with, with some research behind it, you know, we're going to be, sure. we're going to be better in the end as we figure this out and we have openness to, to that possibility and, and adapt as we get new information, right? Like yeah. as we learn more, we adapt and we change mm -hmm. and, and the ability to change. I think that's, I just think that's, that's how we have to do this. This is complex. We're complex and we've got to keep, you know, figuring it out. So I just want to clarify, I don't have any issues with addiction. All my kids are doctors, no family history. I've been blessed to in this country for what I've got and my family got. And I realize this system is broken and this is my giving back to the system and the society and the community I, I live and work and, and so that uh, we can take better care of our, our, our people, our patients. Yeah, absolutely. I love that, Aaron. I love what you're doing. I love that you're putting a voice to this and and you're you're advocating for this these these really important changes that that need to happen. So, one thing I like to do before we totally wrap up here is, you know, maybe someone's out there struggling or maybe a treatment professional is is listening to you and listening to this podcast. What would you want to say to them? And what would be the one thing you'd want them to know? Well, as professionals, we are supposed to take care of our patients. It doesn't matter what kind of condition, shape, age, sex, color, or insurance they have or they don't have. Our job is to save lives and provide the care. And it's not our job to judge them. Well, I see new patients, they're all afraid. Talk, don't. I said, don't worry about it. I'm not here to judge. I'm here to help. And that's the attitude we need. Unfortunately, it's it's a business. It's people have to pay the bills. We keep on treating right. uh, you know uninsured patients all the time, and uh, so it's not going to work. But I help patients understand they have to get to Medicaid, how to get the apply for the insurance, and at least have some assistance and food stamps and whatever they can get from the state. So it is very difficult to manage these people. I, I, I wouldn't say it's piece of cake. It is for me now after doing it for so long, but in the beginning, it's very, very difficult and intimidating and not rewarding. But the biggest reward I get is when people say, Doc, I'll do anything for you. And the families come and say, Doc, thanks for saving my loved one's life. We're indebted to you. That's the biggest reward I have. And all that experience I had that I enjoyed from my patients and their families is the reason I wrote the book and I said, I got to stand up get this thing in a in a better foothold so that we can do better as a nation. All right. So 
So I'm just going to give the title of your book again, The Preventable Epidemic of Frontline Doctors' Experience and Recommendations to Resolve America's Opioid Crisis. I'm sure they can get that on Amazon or wherever they get their books. Where can they find you if they want to talk to you or have questions or want to reach out to you? Where can they find you? My office address is 1094 North Monroe Street, Monroe, Michigan, 48162. My office phone number is 734-241-7162. You could find me on my website, The Preventable Epidemic Book. My uh, 501c3 is SOS Serious Opiate Solutions. And I have, you know, you can find me, drarungupta.com. So you can find me, uh, uh, my foundation work or my book or, or my name. I will, I will put all of that information in the show notes at theaddictedmind.com as well. Aaron, thank you for coming on to the Addicted Mind podcast, sharing your wisdom, your story, your experience to be able to help other people. And, and once again, I think what, what I love about you and what you said is, is bringing humanity to this work for everybody out there who's suffering. Yeah, and the people who are dying, they die, but the families are suffering and we're doing not paying any attention. And that, yeah. that has to improve. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much, Aaron, for coming on. Thank you for inviting me here. It's easy to blame ourselves for our struggles with alcohol. We see people around us being able to control their drinking without any consequences, yet no matter what we try, we can't seem to figure it out for ourselves. My name is Jillian Teets, and I am the host of the Sober Powered Podcast, where I use my biochemistry background to explain the latest research in addiction and help you understand both why you drink the way you do and how to develop the skills and mindset you need to find freedom from alcohol. I discuss topics like why we think about our drinking drinking 24-7, why we have no off switch, and why we crave alcohol. If you're struggling with your drinking or you know someone who is, then I hope that you will check out the Sober Powered Podcast. New episodes every Friday. See you there. All right, everyone. Thank you for listening to the Addicted Mind Podcast. As usual, all the show notes will be at theaddictedmind.com. So check them out there. And don't forget, you can join our Facebook group if you want to continue the conversation online. Just go to Facebook, type in the Addicted Mind Podcast, click join. And if you got a lot out of this episode, please share it with a friend. All right, everyone, have a wonderful day. And I will talk to you on the next episode.